JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. Meantime, on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline, he absolutely pegged things last week. We want to give him the opportunity for that victory lap from Pro Football Focus, Brad Spielberger. You know, it's funny, Brad. So many people after Saturday night's game with the Colts and the Texans said, hey, Spielberger was absolutely on target. Well done by your call this time last week. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was, you know, it's always fun to see a rematch uh, of two opponents. Obviously, two teams that grew a ton over the course of the season. But, you know, that, that battle is going to be fun to watch twice a year, hopefully for the next, you know, decade plus. What's the most disappointing aspect? Let's just say, for example, from a Colts angle here, the most disappointing you know, aspect that you saw you witnessed while watching that game Saturday night. Yeah, I think what's interesting is, you know, look, you know I'm a huge fan of Shane Steichen um, in, in many different respects and different facets. I know a lot of people – kind of up in arms that Jonathan Taylor is time on the rock running so, so well, even on that last drive in particular, and you take him off the field for the third running back, throw a pass, obviously, you know, falls incomplete. I mean, the play call worked. The guy got open. It was not a good throw from Minshew. And obviously Goodson probably still could have caught it. But for me, the bigger issue was using the timeout just before that. You needed that third timeout because you did get the ball back. and You would have had more time to have another, a last drive, you know, get out of bounds, sustain the clock on that one. Some of the game management, some punts, and, and that timeout was actually a bigger, you know, mishap on my end from Steichen. But again, overall, thought he was pretty good, called a good game. Jonathan Taylor looked as good as he looked all season long. There's a ton of positive, you know, things to take into the offseason. My suggestion was this yesterday, and obviously um, there was a lot that I critiqued. You have that in your your building at home on a Saturday night, and I don't care if you have the backup quarterback in. I mean, he's the reason why they're in that position. And my expectation was that they would take care of it, which ultimately they did not. I'm going to ask you about that fourth down call. I don't mind the play the way it was drawn up because, as you mentioned, and accurately so, it was open. I mean, with execution, it would work. But – to me, even if you weren't going to use him, I'm sorry, man. There's no way in the world I have 28 on the sideline. At the very least, I want the Texans' defense to recognize that the guy has been balling all night long against them, and he is out there, and that's somebody we need to be paying attention to. And I'm not suggesting they relaxed on that play whatsoever, but you didn't have to deal with the biggest threat offensively on the Colts roster on that particular play. And To me, he's got to be on the field as some sort of threat, even if he is not directly involved in the play itself. I think it's a very fair point. I think one thing we often lose sight of is the gravity of good players, even when they're not the targeted player or the guy getting the handoff, just what defenses have to do to account for their presence on every single snap. And again, in particular in this game, when he was killing them, right? I mean, he really was breaking off chunk plays every single carry. It almost seemed like, so yeah, I hear you. Why not be in 22 personnel? You know, you don't have, um, you know, you can get an extra back on there and give a different look and shake things up a little bit and force the defense to account for both of those guys, especially you go back to it. Was he tired from the drive? Maybe, but then you took a timeout. You got a TV timeout. I'm confident he was, you know, had his win back by the time they ran that play. So, yeah, I hear you. I think it's entirely fair. You know, not only was he that good in that game, but, you know, you pay, you pay the guy to be on there on fourth down with a, in a yeah. playoff game. So, I, I hear you. Well, not only that, too, but he got injured and then came back. And, you know, in, and he came back for a reason. And just to leave him out of that equation on that fourth down call, I, you know, decoy – 
you know, utilizing him, whatever, would have worked. I think anything would have worked besides him standing on the sideline. I hear you. I have no argument for me. <laughs> so Brad Spielberger, a PFF on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Grading-wise from Pro Football Focus, uh, how'd you guys grade? Because I thought this was going to be important, and really there was no consistency on either side. We saw Jonathan Taylor, which we talked about being important. I mean, he was Jonathan Taylor um, at the elite level, running the football, no doubt their biggest threat. But I thought a couple of half-twos that did not show up consistently at all, the offensive line and the defensive line on Saturday night. How did they grade out for the Colts? Yeah, so from a run-blocking standpoint, I think they definitely did. I mean, I think Braden Smith had one of the more dominant uh, outings I've ever seen, uh, and he had a 95.7 run-block grade for us, which absolutely aligned with what I saw from the broadcast angle. Uh, Quentin Nelson in the 80 there as well. But but I do hear you from a pass-block standpoint. Yeah. There were times where Will Anderson was getting home you know, fairly quickly. We've talked a lot about Bernard Raymond and his growth this season. Still a ton to carry forward, but Will Anderson kicked his butt on a couple reps. So like, it, it was definitely not his best outing. So I certainly hear you there. And, and then Gardner, you know, he made a couple plays at times, but I will say it, some of that pressure I think was invited by holding on the ball a little bit too long. Yeah. Um, he also kind of created some inaccuracies with, with some you know, shoddy footwork or kind of getting happy feet a little bit. I'm not trying to, I think I've said that too many times on this show, but it, it does like he has tools and ability and talent. I think he sees the field very, very well. It's almost like sometimes he kind of dances his way out of um, some accurate passes or limiting the yards after the catch because the the receiver has to kind of reach behind them to make a play. Stuff like that, I think, popped up on film uh, in this game in particular. So I talk about this all the time, and I want you to verify this. He gets happy feet when moments would not necessarily dictate a quarterback having happy feet. Is that what you're talking about? Bingo, 100% right. We, we talk, call often like bailing from clean pockets. And again, like we've never stood in a pocket and had 350-pound, you know, monsters chasing after us. So I get it. But it's you should trust this unit, especially when you get Braden back. So you have, you know, your starting five is a good, you know, probably top 10 offensive line in the NFL in both facets of play. Um, and Houston, look, Will Anderson's a good rookie, but that is not a top 15 pass rush in the NFL, uh, especially without Jonathan Grenard, their other edge, who had a really, really good season, did not play in this game. Yeah, that, that's what's a bigger issue. Like, under pressure, I, I get it. But when you are, yeah, when, when you have sloppy footwork, when you're not really under pressure, that's when you kind of you lose those opportunities to hit those explosive gains through the air. He is Brad Spielberger of Pro Football Focus. Absolutely pegged that game last week at this time. Texans moving on. They host, of course, Cleveland coming up in the 4 o'clock hour on Saturday down in Houston as the AFC South champion in the AFC postseason. Brad's with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. You mentioned a little bit that defensive line. I I thought that they, they got it going in the third but they were not nearly representative of what I felt that the Colts needed in that game on Saturday. Would you and the numbers at PFF agree? Yeah, no, I do agree with you, unfortunately. There were there were some spots here and there, and CJ Stroud, to his credit, was remarkable under pressure, um, which really is just the most fascinating thing because it was the biggest red flag on his college tape. It's why everyone had question marks about him. Uh, was from a clean pocket, as good as it gets, one under pressure, you know, for us, he'd he had an outside the top 100 passing grade when pressured in the FBS last year, um, except for the Georgia game. He was sublime, and it's been that way his entire NFL career. So, anyway, yes, I don't think you got enough, you know, in particular off the edge. Samson Abacam, one pressure for us. Um, you know, Tyquan Lewis actually led the team with four, um, but just, just not really enough there. DeForest Buckner, the only other player with multiple quarterback pressures in that game, that's just not going to get it done. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm with you. Those guys came up short. Quiddy pay zero pressures in a do-or-die game. And, look, Laramie Tunsil left tackle, one of the best pass-protecting left tackles in the NFL. But that team has backups playing at center, left guard, and right tackle. Um, it, it should have been a better performance from that that unit. See, what, what's so tough to digest around here, Brad, is this, that, that – defensive line had had set sack records this year going back to 1987 and surpassing you know years collectively that we saw on either side Mathis and Freeney the greats around here spin and get to the quarterback they surpassed those numbers but came up about as small as you possibly could when it really mattered Saturday and I think so I mentioned the O-line which does deserve accolades but this is also you know what Bobby Slowick is trying to accomplish in this offense is get the ball out extremely quickly 
on a lot of quick outs to their players that then get ahead of steam and go to work with yards after the catch. And this is a team that did not have their star rookie in Tank Dell, didn't have Robert Woods. Noah Brown came in, dinged up in this game. It really was, I mean, look at the statute. It was Nico Collins, yeah. was basically the entire offense. And we obviously did highlight him, and he was exceptional this year, second in the entire NFL in yards per route run. I mean, one of the, one of the great third-year breakouts uh, across the entire NFL. But, but when you know you have one guy that's going to beat you, um, and look, he can separate early, but he's, you know, a 6'3", 220 type of guy. Like, he's not this shifty 5'8", like, you know, you know, like create immediate separation at the line guy. I'll say this, you know, that is where when you're a bit predictable on the back end and you, you know you're going to play a lot of cover three, C.J. Stroud has the third best passing grade in the entire NFL for us against zone, uh, actually 26th against man, so that Cleveland game is going to be fascinating because they actually lead the NFL uh, in man coverage or, you know, top five. You just, they knew where they were going pre-snap, and so they almost, I'm not going to say the defensive line couldn't have been better. They could have, but also, you know, coverage helps you get pressures. Um, and the coverage did not help them get any pressures or sacks in this game. We'll say this, that first play of the game for 75 yards and a touchdown is ridiculous. Because you're right, and I want you to speak more regarding that. We talked about Nico Collins, and it would seem to me defensively that I'm not considering they're going to be able to completely take him away. But if he was a focus, I cannot imagine what he would have done offensively had he not been the focus. I thought that that was one of the more embarrassing aspects of that defensive performance was the fact that he was like one of the lone dudes out there and they could not come close. He still roasted this defense over and over again. And it's interesting. So it also is, again, going back to Bobby Sullivan. And, you know, there's clearly there's a reason he's doing a bunch of head coach interviews as we speak. But a big thing he's done this year, um, and shout out Josh Norris, at underdog fantasy, who's highlighted a bunch uh, on Twitter, when he wants to take deep shots on play action. Where I think we're used to a lot of teams having, you know, maybe three receiver, four receiver sets, trying to have clear out routes and create separation with spacing and, and with putting a defense in conflict on the back end. What he does, he max protects. He'll have Andrew Beck in at fullback. He'll have two tight ends. He'll have seven guys blocking and then three receivers running routes or even two receivers running routes. Um, and, and, you know, it doesn't work every single time, but that's what he was doing a lot in this game was C.J. Stroud had so much protection that he, he still didn't need a lot of time if Nico Collins was getting open immediately, but he knew he could probably dance around one pressure if it came or trust the play action, turn his back to the defense and not worry about it. And you saw it on that play in particular. He was just so calm, cool, and collected, waiting for Nico to get open and then threw an absolute dot. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Sloak was awesome in this game. You see why, like I said, he is currently you know, talking to a bunch of teams looking for a new head coach. So Brad Spielberger, Pro Football Focus with us. I think we went over this a couple of different times, and now it's more appropriate to talk about it. But in terms of the backup quarterback role, which Gardner Minshew goes back to next year if he, he stays here, I, to me, I think it's important for the Colts to have somebody legitimate like that as a backup. But how robust will his market value be? considering how he looked in that final game and then putting everything together. Because I think we both thought that maybe the true way that he would leave is to go start someplace else. I, I can't imagine that being a part of anybody's equation right now. But you tell me, what's your expectation for his market value? And is that something to where, first things first, would you suggest he ends up back here as the backup quarterback? Yeah, to the point of starting somewhere else, I think really the easiest way to look at it is this. A coach who believes in him maybe more than any other coach in the entire NFL in Shane Steichen brought him with him, drafted a kid in the first round, fourth overall, who played one season of college football. And, I, and we've talked about it. I don't think it's as raw as people said, but certainly was a raw prospect compared to you know Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud. And at no point pretended there was a quarterback competition in any way, shape, or form, right? Like it was like, this guy's a starter, this guy's yeah. a backup. So. If that's Steichen's perspective, then, then then I really doubt another team's going to say, hey, yeah, we're going to give this guy a chance to start. He'll have a camp battle. Maybe the rookie will beat him out. You know, if they a team that takes, you know, obviously not the first or second pick, but, you know, your Jaden Daniels, your, your Michael Panix, your Bonix, whatever. I'm not even sure I see that. So I think he'll get a raise over the one year, three and a half million dollars. But, you know, we talked about my, my free agency article that I do. I think I have him at 215, which is, basically the Taylor Heineke contract elsewhere. It's, it's strong backup quarterback money. It is for a team that 
So similar, similar situation. There wasn't a battle between Desmond Ritter and Taylor Heineke, but I think Atlanta knew there's a possibility this young guy doesn't take that step and we want to have a you know solid starting quarterback in place. That's more the, the role I see for a Minshew elsewhere, or if he stays like we talked about, maybe he takes 2-8, 2-10, um, a little bit of a discount, but has the stability, a coach that believes in him, can help this young quarterback, you know, come you know, along the way. I still stand where I stood last time. It, it, he'll get a raise, um, but I don't think anything crazy. Yeah, and see, and see, I think now, given they didn't make the postseason and how he looked in that game in front of everybody in prime time on Saturday, probably takes away from what he would have been value-wise had they punched their ticket, ended up winning the division, having a home playoff game, you know, playing a beatable team in Cleveland. I think that all plays in the role of him and his market value not being nearly what people thought it might had he won that game. I would say I agree with you there. And also, you know, the draft class. So, of course, again, there's the big names. I get that. But I think we'll get five picks in the first two rounds. But I still think you'll get, like, Michael Pratt at Tulane in the top 125 picks. You know, like, we can consider, I can name a couple guys that I think will be, let's say, first five-round picks. So, you have that. And then I know these guys are older and, and whatever. But, you look, Kirk Cousins, Russell Wilson, you know, it, there, there are other options as well at a certain point. There's only 32 starting jobs, um, and I just think the game of musical chairs isn't really playing into his favor. What is the um, the value for Michael Pittman Jr.? I want him back. Most people would suggest him not being number one. Is he going to be worthy for the amount of money that is thrown at him? And we know that the Colts still need to upgrade at the receiver, even if he does return. What what do you expect his market value to be? Because he mentioned yesterday that's something that he and his team will investigate. Yeah, look, he had a great year. He boosted his value 110%. I still, as I've said the whole year, expect the first step to be a franchise tag, and then they'll get to work on trying to iron out a multi-year deal. I don't think it's in the upper echelon. You know, I think you saw last offseason that the whole tranche of players, the you know DK Metcalf, Debo Samuel, Terry McLaurin, all those guys, got around 22 to 23, 24 million dollars a year. I think a year later, he's kind of right in that bucket. So despite the market growth, despite you know, every position tries to rise with the cap and all those things, still the 22-23 range is about where I think it would land, um, which, yeah, you, you, can, you can quibble if he's worth that number, if he is a number one in the same vein as those players. He's so, so unique, as we talked about. Um, but I think his camp could also push back and say, okay, if you're going to make the argument of he has a low average depth of target, you know, a.k.a. he's not winning a lot downfield, he's more of a possession guy, they would say, okay, well, the Matt Ryan Colts last year were one of the worst passing offenses in the entire National Football League. This year, you had, you know, a couple starts with Richardson, a rookie quarterback, and then a backup in Gardner Minshew. So we hear you, we get what you're saying, you didn't test well, yada, yada, yada. For all you know, if he was playing in an offense that, you know, had 4,500 passing yards, He'd have 1,500, not 1,100, right? So, so I think you can kind of argue both directions in that one. Um, I'll, I'll throw the number. I'll stick with 23. I'll, I'll just go with that number in terms of av- average annual value. I asked this a little bit earlier. Any of these? We have this every year. It seems elite level wide receivers that grow tired of their present situation and try to maneuver themselves, most of the time they do that, out of that environment. Anybody come to mind that may want to do that coming up this offseason? Yeah, I think a couple want to do it. I don't know if the Indianapolis either has the interest or they have the interest in going to the Colts, but you know, I think Devontae Adams, especially if the Raiders do move on from Antonio Pierce, um, you know, I think he'll try to force his way out. I assume try to go to the Jets and reunite with Aaron Rodgers could be on top of his list or, you know, go chase the ring wherever else he sees a legit opportunity. Um, I, I think his name jumps out. I, I think it's very, very possible. Talk to the other one. The other one I'd say is not forcing himself out because he doesn't like the situation. Um, I wonder if Cincinnati is going to pay up for T. Higgins. Unlike Michael Pittman, you know, back-to-back draft picks in the, in the class, he missed half the season with injury. He was good when he played. But, you know, they got Jamar Chase coming up. They just paid Joe Burrow. Are they going to be willing to pay him the money he wants, which I think is a similar number? 
I just don't know. I think they tag him, and I think a tag-and-trade is more likely there than a tag-and-trade is likely in Indianapolis with Pittman. He is Brad Spielberger, Pro Football Focus. Before I let you go, you have to try to explain to me the rationale in Amy Adams-Strunk doing what she did with Mike Rabel down in Tennessee. Does it come win-loss record? Is it general manager that didn't bring him in here? What is the reason why? I mean, you would have to have somebody right in mind to make that type of move with Rabel today? So I'll say this. I think Rabel is a clear-cut top 10 coach in the NFL. Maybe might even be top five if I sat down and tried to list them all out. Gets as much out of his talent as any coach in the NFL. Um, my understanding of the situation, this goes back to last offseason, is you bring in a new general manager who thought, hey, that we had a great run, four straight winning seasons, number one seed in the AFC one year, made the conference championship game another year. But where this roster is at right now, it is not good enough. We are not going to contend this year. So we should sell off assets, trade players, move on from Ryan Tannehill, you know, save $27 million there uh, in terms of salary, and start this thing over with a rookie quarterback. And Rabel said, nope, I don't like that idea at all. Let's go sign DeAndre Hopkins. Let's go sign Andre Dillard at left tackle, who barely played. Um, you know, let's keep all those guys, pay all those veterans, and here we are. So I think he is a phenomenal coach, but – I think he wanted not full control of personnel, but close to full control of personnel. And I just don't think Tennessee views it the same way. They want to split alignment with a, a GM and a head coach. Um, and, and I think that's kind of where, what it came down to. I know Colts fans won't want to hear this, but give me your comparison of the rookie season of C.J. Stroud that's going to be a thorn in the side around here forever with some of those names in recent or longer-term history at the quarterback position we've seen. Oh, it's one of the greatest rookie seasons of all time. Um, it really, really is, uh, no matter how you slice it. It, it. Because I also think we, we underappreciate – we now like, don't talk about it in the same terms, but he went to an organization that was, I mean, a dumpster fire would be putting it maybe kindly before he got there, right? I mean, just so much turmoil, not a lot of talent on the roster on either side of the ball. Obviously, D'Amico Ryan's, you know, probably should be coach of the year or certainly one of the top candidates, you know, along with the Shane Steichen. But – elevating the entire organization, elevating the team. We're talking about Nico Collins, who's talented, but I don't know, was like a 600-yard-a-year receiver uh, and now is a 1,500-yard type of guy with C.J. Stroud. The only one I can think of in recent memory is Justin Herbert. Um, and then before that, you're talking Andrew Luck and Robert Griffin back in 2012. Um, I, I think if you, if you sat down and looked at it, it's probably one of the top five to ten rookie quarterback seasons of all time. You expect Jim Harbaugh to be in the NFL as a head coach next year? I do. I think he's dying to get back to the NFL. You know, it's going to take, we just talked about with Vrabel. I think he also would want almost the entire control of personnel. Uh, and I'll mention the guy I just, I just, or I'll pair him with the guy I just mentioned. I think the Chargers could be interesting. Harbaugh understanding the assignment of we're tearing this entire thing down to the studs. We're building around this quarterback, and, and we want you here for the long haul. It's not a quick fix. We're going to re-kind of brand the entire program and culture. Um, I, I could see Raiders, but I, I'll, I'll go with Jim Harbaugh as the coach of the Chargers is my, my prediction. You know, it's funny about that. When you mention it, and it makes all the sense in the world, and the only thing that doesn't is I think that atmosphere, win, lose, or draw, is always going to suck there in at SoFi Stadium for the Chargers. That's the only thing where, and I, I know that that would not keep them from hiring the best or wanting somebody like that, but at times, you know, a, an environment like that may keep a coach from viewing that as as viable as we might think. I'll say this. You are 110% spot on. The joke we always make on our show is that the Rams and Chargers don't play home games because uh, away fans just fill the stadium. However, Go Google what the 49ers stadium looked like before Jim Harbaugh <laughs> took over. Uh, you know, you could hear a pin drop in that building. So I hear you. I think you're right. Um, but I think he, he embraced that challenge in, in San Francisco. They had no fans coming to games after that rough stretch they had. Um, and obviously, once he was there winning games and making NFC championship games, uh, the place was rocking. We're still going for the postseason here, right, Brad? Of course. Of course. Why not? Well, people would miss you on Tuesday if we didn't. So I want to make sure we're solidified for that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I love coming on and talking to you. And, yeah, we have plenty to talk about now. I always talk about free agency and the draft and yep. all that stuff. You know, now, now we're in my, my wheelhouse.
Well, we will have some things pop, I'm sure, in the weeks to come that get more interesting regarding the Colts around here, too, because Chris Ballard still has to have his annual meeting with the media coming up at some point, too. So we'll learn a little bit more about some thinking and be able to really get into it around here. Brad, we appreciate you. And again, right on target last week. That's well done. Uh, Thank you. You have a good one. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Meantime, Andy Moore, Automotive Group Hotline right now. Uh, SI and so much more. Hardcore covers the Pacers, and it was a hell of an interesting night last night, certainly for Tony Easton Company, who joins us now. All right, so we got the news. Uh, you had it, and obviously Adrian Wojnarowski had it a little bit earlier today. Should Pacer fans, like, dial down the angst a little bit and, and feel good about this injury situation, or should you, because of past situations, remain a little bit skeptical? Because <laughs> we've been down this path before. Can you blame the fan base for having a not whatsoever? Fan? None. I mean, I, I talked about this yesterday. So, so to answer the question you're asking me, you got to feel better now, right? Like it is the best case scenario of all the bad scenarios, even though it's still not great. You know, they're going on a tough road trip. Their January schedule is rough, and they're going to be missing their best player for at least seven games. Uh, but I mean, the parallels with 2018 with Oladipo. I mean slipping under the same basket, right, being down on the floor, getting carried off by teammates at first. He had a stretch, of course. The towel being thrown over the guy. The Pacers somehow winning the game where it happened because some role guys have awesome games against a really good team in January for an ascending team. I mean, it was so weird how similar it all felt to me, but this one has a much better outcome for the Pacers than that one did. Yeah, I I just I immediately thought here's one thing. I was I was torn because I thought the worst and I thought in terms of Oladipo or then Paul George and that, you know, that summer Olympic game. Those are the two things that popped into my mind and then I thought when he was carried off, I was hoping that we would get good news later and it it would turn out to be like a Paul Pierce moment where he got in a wheelchair but then everything quickly was okay. Does that make sense? He just had to go to the room and uh, stretch the hamstring out, right? That's Yeah. That's how it happened. Yeah, it was like during the game, you almost won an update, but what can you even get before an MRI, you know? So you just had to sit there in limbo the whole time, too. It was, it's just how it was. But again, three of the Pacers. Yeah, I, I tell you what. Hang on, Tony, really quick. Put Tony on hold because his phone's kind of cutting out. I want to make sure everybody hears what you have to say right here because we got a little bit more regarding Tyrese Halliburton, as Tony mentioned to him, we've talked about so far today. You get Washington tomorrow at Cambridge Fieldhouse, and then get a long-termer going out west. That begins in, of all places, Atlanta. But as I I mentioned earlier, you've got that back-to-back between Denver in the afternoon on Sunday and then Salt Lake City with the Utah Jazz at 9 o'clock on Monday. That is historically a very difficult back-to-back right there. Among the back-to-backs, that is at the top of the list. I want to make sure Tony and his connection is good enough so you can hear him right here. Rotationally speaking, where the Pacers go and a lot more. And uh, welcome back from SI and more. Tony East, who covers the Pacers on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Um so two weeks evaluation, I had mentioned, somebody had said tread water a little bit earlier. This is survival mode because we saw what happened yeah. last year when Halliburton got injured. This whole thing went right in the toilet and got flushed. Just survival mode. Is this team good enough, especially embarking on this West Coast trip after tomorrow night? Are they good enough to survive this time without him? So uh, I, th- I think they're better than last year. Right. Last year he got hurt. What they lose seven in a row and then survived against the Bulls by two or three to break that streak. You know that they they really struggled with that in last year. This year's team is clearly better. Right. Neesmith is better. Matherin's better. All the vets are at least the same. Right. They've got the ability to hold up just from that, and they also have Bruce Brown and Obi Toppin, which they didn't last year. Right. If you need proof of concept that they're better with than last year without him. They won last night, right? Like their second half did go well still. And their and their net rating without him this year is better than last year, right? So numerically, 
at least they're better equipped to survive him. That said, I still think they're probably a below-average team without him. And you already mentioned their schedule coming up is brutal. They play the Wizards tomorrow. They really need to win that one. Then they have a, a West Coast swing and a road game in Atlanta. And then they come home with Denver, Philly, Phoenix. So yeah. their next, you know, 10, they've got one and a half easy ones. And, and the half one's Portland, which is a road back-to-back. And Portland already beat the Pacers this season. So, I mean, treading well, I, I think if you can still be over 500 by the time Halliburton returns, I think you're happy for the Pacers. And I think they can do it. But it will be hard because their schedule's tough and, you know, they have a you know four and six nights with two back to backs on this road trip, and their opponents are tough. But they just never get a break. Their January is rough, and they've done well to bank these wins in their last eight games. But without Albert, it's going to be way harder. So yes, treading water is the perfect way to put it. If they can be over five hundred by the time he returns, I think they've got to take that. Yeah, and the players will tell you too. The toughest of the back to backs in the NBA is Mountain Time Zones, Denver yeah. to Utah, right there. And they got yeah. that on a Sunday afternoon in Denver with the defending champions, and then a Utah team that all of a sudden is getting a little bit hot right here at nine o'clock on Monday night. Best record in the NBA over the last ten games, the Utah Jazz. Where did that come from? It's mm. so it's so random. So yeah, Washington's winnable, uh, but they have already lost the Wizards with Halliburton. And you, I would have said Utah's a winnable. Maybe not. They beat Atlanta twice already this year, but I mean, again, without Tyrese, it's all challenging. And then they get no breaks. It's all back to backs and tough opponents. So they're going to need to be <laughs> until they play Memphis on the twenty eighth with Moran out for the season now. Basically, between the Washington game and then they have no gimme. So, any win they get, even an ugly 105-104 win, they've got to take it and never let it go. That's that's the situation they're in now. So, Tony Easter joins us talking Pacers on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Have you allowed yourself to think about when you would hard target a Halliburton return? Hard target? I don't know that I can give a for sure date. I mean, the only thing I could add beyond a reevaluation is, He's talked a lot about how excited he was for their TNT game, right? Their only scheduled one before the season where the Pacers are on national TV. Now, of course, they got the full in-season tournament bracket run with three extra games, but at Boston on the 30th is that game. They're on TNT. Halbert was very much looking forward to it. That is exactly three weeks from today. So if he's reevaluated in two weeks and still needs a little ramp up or to get reintegrated at home, you know, maybe he returns in that, Philly, Phoenix, Memphis homestead, but just so he can be back for the TNT game. Maybe he just returns in Boston. Who knows? I don't even know if it's possible that he could return that quickly after the reevaluation. You look at these hamstring grade one strains, and there's not a wide range, but, you know, not an obvious reevaluation time. Two to three weeks is generally kind of what it looks like. So I would imagine by the end of the month there's a chance, but you just never know. Muscles, a different thing with he has forward kind of circling i can guess right now but that's it it's a guess so uh, tony east with us hey make sure again his phone is okay tony you may just have to stay in one spot here for the next couple of minutes because you're not you're, moving I th- at all i think when you, i think when you move around things go a little bit haywire and i'm assuming we know rotationally speaking who is going to try to at least in his spot pick up the slack you talked about andrew nimhart and others uh we saw last night again the level of importance that tj mcconnell is with this young team in terms of creating enthusiasm and opportunities for it. we saw that again last night so rotationally speaking I'm, I'm assuming we know the direction in which this is going for rick carlisle yeah i think what you saw in the second half last night is the expectation, at least that I have, right? Andrew Nemhard started in Halberd's place in that second half, and that means their starting five is basically the best possible defensive five that the Pacers have, which is Nemhard, Neesmith, Brown, Jalen Smith, and Miles Turner. And then at least you can have some identity and some hope of success with that group, even with Halberton out, and then your bench would be you know, you have Buddy Heald and Obi Toppin operating as your shooters, and they both shot well last night. And then McConnell and um, and Matherin acting as your kind of attackers or score types, and they both did well in that role last night. So I think that kind of makes sense as your rotation with Isaiah Jackson being your bench five, as your ten guys who play. And all those lineups make sense. You have some cohesion. Maybe you try to stagger Brown and Nemhard in some way to keep a combo of creation and defense on the floor as much as you can. But I think you saw the blueprint last night. You can't replicate 
Hal Burton's passing and shooting combination. So maybe they lean a little more into Heald and Toppin and Neesmith just to get as much shooting on the floor as possible. But I think they might try to opt for as much defense as they can just to try to make it so their margin for error offensively is a little wider. Is the fact that uh, Walker is not getting any minutes whatsoever, is that more about where he is right now or more about those and to the level on which they're playing in front of him? Both uh, is my bad answer. But, you know, if Obi Toppin was 30, for example, I think Jairus Walker might be playing. The problem is, you know, the guys in front of him are also young, right? Aaron Neesmith is 23. Obi Toppin is 25. The guys they have playing at the 3-4, even with the second unit, are young already. So they're kind of growing and developing those guys as well, which makes it a little harder to just throw Jairus Walker in and figure out exactly – you know, where he can play. And so I think he is behind those guys in terms of what his impact could be right now. And I don't usually expect rookies to do anything of significance on the defensive end anyway. So his passing is nice. He shot it well in the G League and even in the pros recently. But I think we'll have to kind of see where, you know, he he could have an impact in the pros. He's only played over 15 minutes, I think three times, twice in the pros. But I just I just think that they have young options. His position is more so the hurdle than anything he's done wrong just because if they're in development mode and winning mode at the same time, they have options to do that, and he is not one of the best options to do so. He has uh, Tony East who joins us. Uh, SI and more, he covers the Pacers with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So did you guys at the game last night, did you uh, write a column and celebrate the fact that the first time ever the Pacers got preferential treatment <laughs> with officiating? Because <laughs> there is no way in the world I felt that that was going to get overturned. And really, uh, in a world of official reviews, that if there is just the smallest of glimpse that will justify that call, they will go with the call on the floor. I could not believe it last night in that moment that was overturned. You agree? Yeah, I thought you're talking about the Buddy Hill block. Yes, I am. Uh, Jalen Brown. Yeah. Yes, yes, 100% agree. I thought, like, I get why. I mean, obviously, you challenge it no matter what, just because there's no yeah. harm at that point of the game. And funnily enough, like, I'll get to this in a second. You know, I, I thought, well, like you, that the contact with the back of Brown's head, even if it was at the same time or after or whatever, the block doesn't matter. I thought that would be enough for them to just keep it as a foul and he'd go to the line. I was pretty surprised. And then. Joe Missoula and Buddy Heald kind of both suddenly were like, yeah, you know, maybe it was a foul. And, and I think Missoula said that Buddy Heald told him that, right, after the yeah. game and said, yeah. went up to him and said, hey, I might have fouled him. But they, they overturned it, and the Pacers were, you know, this is always a weird part of that. Like, the whistle blows, but if you grab that rebound, which the Pacers did, they have possession now coming out of the challenge, right? So really significant swing. And then obviously Matherin got fouled himself. The lesser discussed part of this is like, Let's pretend Brown made both. Matherin still had three shots to win, right? So it's not like that was the decider. It obviously had a massive impact on the end of the game. I'm not going to deny that. But it was a very, you know, very rarely do those get overturned in those moments. And I can understand, like the angst with injuries, Pacers fans being very surprised that a call like that went in their favor. I thought that that was more obvious than the Aaron Neesmith foul of Brown on that three-point shot. <laughs> yeah. so, and and, yeah, and I understand was... why that got called, too, because he, he got off balance, and even with his arms behind his back, he was on the lean with his chest right there. Um, and while I think, you know, I don't like the call because that's these calls these guys get, I certainly expected to be whistled. But I thought that that, to me, I thought the it was, it was more obvious with the, the back of the head of Jalen Brown than it was even on that call. Yeah, it, that Neesmith one was weird because I think they were calling the landing space one, really, on that because he jumped across the line. But, yeah, he had his hands behind his back. Like, it was so bang-bang, it was hard to tell. And they had the flagrant in the first half. I believe Matherin was the the committer of that foul, and he swung through in a block and, and got Brown in the head. And they called that one a flagrant, right? So, like, the head contact coming through the block had been called a flagrant earlier in that game, right? So, a lot of confusion and I tweeted this during the game you know you watched the whole game I think that's the most travels I've seen called in any <laughs> NBA game I've watched this whole season yep. right like there were at least five or six so there was a lot of whistles and a lot of head scratching confusing ones that I suppose by the letter of the law are what they called but are typically just not things you see in it it just made it a little different even though the Pacers are certainly happy with how it ended and 
Still no last two minutes report from last night's game. I am looking forward to we, seeing We, you know, normally we loathe that, but <laughs> given the circumstances of last night, Tony, I think we're going to be very happy to see the outcome of it regardless, too. And you know what? We got a three-second call, not a defensive three-second call, but a legitimate three-second in the lane call with Jalen Brown kind of stuck with Miles shutting him down right there in the lane. Yeah. Another one you don't see very yes. much, right? Like, just they kept stacking up. I thought they – didn't they call – or, no, this might have been their game before. Yeah, the, the prior Celtics game, they called Halliburton for one of those lane violations where you sneak in too early on the free throw. Like, <laughs> heck, I thought they were going to call the Pacers for one of those out-of-bounds where after a make, they don't get all the way out before they inbound. You know, no one ever seems to care about that because it doesn't matter. But, heck, yeah. they, were, they were calling everything else to it, too. Why not do that one? Hey, forget about the over – you had back-to-back over-and-back calls last night, too. <laughs> <laughs> if you've heard of a call before, they called it in that game. <laughs> you know what? The best part about it, watching it, was um, when Porzingis fouled Matherin and, and Chris Denario, the broadcast kept saying, that's a three-shot foul. That's a three-shot foul. I thought Quinn was going to put him in a headlock because Quinn didn't want to hear about it. He didn't really care at the moment. But really, <laughs> really, in Chris's defense, that didn't matter in and the strategy that Rick chose to go with instead of making all three, yet giving Boston the opportunity to call a timeout, advance the ball, and you know be able to to get a shot off, you know he chose to go with missing that third and then having you know just the opportunity to tip it. Which, by the way, Cornette got that up on the rim. That was very close, anyway. Yeah, I don't know if you could see this on the broadcast or not, but in the arena after the third one where he missed it and the Celtics rebounded, Aaron Neesmith came out on the floor and was like trying to show him how to spin it and throw it up at the rim so it bounces farther away <laughs> and you can tip it instead of calling a timeout, which was pretty funny. So I didn't actually notice at the time that they were going for the intentional miss until I saw them teaching each other how to do it correctly, which make with point six to go, you know, your odds of losing on a full court tip are so low. Uh, versus point six left, letting the team, you know, call a timeout and have a chance to tie on the three. I think you're probably happy with that probability play, but when you're up two and they get the timeout, then you're at the mercy of the the cornet miracle, which, man, was that close. Man, that <laughs> thing is- danced on the rim for a moment. The thing that concerned me more than anything else was a foul call. You know, given how that game had gone and really gone against late Boston, I thought if you are going oh. to get some sort of whistle, this is going to be the time in which you're going to get it. What are the odds? As we're speaking, the last two minutes reported out. Let's see. What's All there. right. Well, go through it for us right here. Let's celebrate it. <laughs> had to say uh, about Buddy Heald saying, oh, they, okay, the correct no call. Uh, this is hard to say. This is a very long explanation. <laughs> it's hard to say, but it looks like they say correct no call as it uh, as it stands. So I believe that they think they got it correctly. As wow. the rule book makes clear, the mere fact that contact occurs does not necessarily constitute a foul. All right, there we go. They they say that that was correct. Man, anything though, any anything above the shoulders is always can't miss. It seems in the NBA now. Oh. The, the call on Porzingis was actually incorrect. Oh, really? He really contests Matherin's shot attempts with some incidental arm contact. Wow. <laughs> well, that, that still that makes me feel good. That, I think that's the only, yeah, the only incorrect call of the report is actually that that should not have been called a foul. Wow. Wow. That is, <laughs> that's good stuff. I, I don't know if everybody enjoys that, but this may be the first time I've enjoyed the final two-minute report <laughs> of any Pacer game. Right here. <laughs> they, they, and man, did they need that win, right? Like, for, for all the time for them to be graced by the, the basketball gods. Yeah. You know, when, you're, when your star gets hurt and you've got that schedule coming up, that's when you need it for morale, and they got it. They needed it. So Tony East, who joins us, the other thing I pointed out at the beginning of the show, we, we've seen it, too, with the salty nature of the Bucks losing four or five, and now we've seen it a little bit with the Celtics. Are we seeing the Pacers now, obviously with Hal Burton, it's expedited, but are we seeing the Pacers now growing into a challenging team that teams really truly do care about? And I thought, again, the Bucks and the Celtics most recently have been, I think, very good examples of the direction and the threat that teams around the NBA now perceive the Pacers to be. Is that fair? I think so. You know, and, and you're right that, you know, Jalen Brown was very frustrated last night, but we've seen fan bases get frustrated with 
playing the Pacers. I think part of it is the style's difficult, right? Like, and you know, you've watched every game this team's played. Like, they can beat anybody, right? But when you're the Celtics and you've lost seven games the whole season and two of them are to the Pacers, or you're the Bucks and prior to their current poo-poo level, you've lost ten games all season and four of them are to the Pacers, right? You're like, dang, I hate those guys, right? Like, we, we can't beat them and we can beat anybody else. I think that part of it is just naturally that everyone's surprised that this team that, you know, is tied for eighth in the East can beat anybody. If you're a fan of the team, it's infuriating to play that kind of style. In terms of what it means to the Pacers specifically, right, they talked about this last year, you know, that their random fast-paced style makes them hard to scout, right, on a game-to-game basis, and that's less difficult when Halberton's out. But, you know, if you're an opposing team and, and you show up for a game and you're, like, a little tired and you're not up for – you know, this one of 82, well, good luck. Because if you're not focused or ready to run, you're not going to have very much fun playing the Pacers. And that can be frustrating when all night they're just coming at you and scoring 130-whatever points. So I think that's sometimes frustrating for players. I think their style is difficult to deal with on a night-to-night basis. And when you can beat anybody but also lose to anybody, it is a little annoying if you're the Celtics and you've lost to them twice. Hey, Tony, before I let you go, um, th- this is a byproduct, I guess, of the Halliburton injury and whatever the timing is going to end up being. And it, really, I'd kind of lost a thought that the Pacers were going to do anything prior to the trade deadline. But what does this injury, if anything at all, do for that thought, for Pacer fans or just the Pacers in general, the possibility that they do something prior to the NBA trade deadline? Yeah, you know, I, I actually have a bad, like a not fun answer, and that's kind of depends how they do with them out, right? Because, let, like right now, they're I just said they're tied for eighth, but really fourth through eighth in the East is all dead tied, right? If they do awesome with Halbert out and he returns on January 30th and they're still in fourth and they look great, maybe you're more willing to invest in the team this year, right? Because you know that if you make one upgrade, you're going to be in the playoffs and that's going to be valuable for your young players. And you're ready to take important steps forward as, as the Pacers. And let's say he's out for eight or nine games and they go two and seven and they're under 500 and they're firmly in eighth, then maybe you're not as willing to make those upgrades. And you're just kind of hoping you get in as the seven or eight seed and it can get that experience with your young guys anyway. So I think it can change their trade deadline plans if things go poorly or really well. But as it stands right now, I think that you kind of just have to see the results because currently I think that a minor upgrade makes a lot of sense just given the state of the East and how the Pacers have been playing. And maybe a major upgrade if the price is right, but they are fortunate that they have a month to kind of see how this goes and what makes sense for them because it could certainly significantly change their plans. What do you think their lean might be with Buddy in mind? Uh, knowing his his contract situation and and such I, uh, is there any uh, effect and I, I guess we can also factor in maybe not as much but how he fits in and this is part of what I believe and why I don't believe they're going to do anything I think compared to what is at least what we know about Tony right now that Mark might be available on the market I don't know that you want to upset the growth of the rest of this team to mess with any of that, especially at the price tag that it would take. Now, maybe something else pops up, unbeknownst to us right now, that makes a lot more sense. But I'm moving further and further away, I guess, of anything right now in which we've been made aware of making any sense. Yeah, it's it's really tricky. Like I think to a lesser extent, you got to think about this with Warren and Toppin as well, but every expiring contract you have to sort of think about what you're going to do with it, right? We, we were having, you and I were having this discussion last year with Miles Turner, yeah. and that of, course, that of course ended much differently, and that could happen again, right? They have cap space, it could renegotiate and extend, Buddy healed again, maybe that happens under the wire, but, you know, it's very interesting that that we're, they're in this position again, and it, it kind of set, will say a lot about their future and their cap space plans, depending on how they decide to do this, but with Heald, Toppin, and Wara, that's three expiring contracts of guys that, you know, in theory, you could lose them this summer. They have restricted free agency to keep Toppin, but maybe that's an attractive trade package at the same time, and then it's guys you were going to lose anyway, and you get something you like. So if I'm running a team that isn't, you know, for sure getting home quarter has a chance to win a series, then I always am thinking about what I can get from my expirings. But the Pacers maybe can win a series, right? They're, they're currently tied for fourth in the East, so it's not that easy for them to just say they should sell off stuff at this stage, but I think they do have to be thinking about, especially now that Tyrese is hurt, what this is all going to look like and how they can assess the market because he could have some value as a shooter. Even though the shot has been falling this year, 
you know, they, that, that's how the Pacers have to think. They said before the season they still have that long-term thinking in mind. So as weird as it is, you know, they, they have to think that way, even if they're winning at the level they are. Hey, Tony, how close are they for making up for those egregious early season home losses right now? The reason why I bring that up is because uh, Washington on the road certainly would be one of those egregious losses. How close are they making up for that? Uh, I think they have. <laughs> Honestly, the stretch they just had where they won six in a row, including – two against Milwaukee, and they won in Houston, and they beat the Knicks, albeit with some caveats, and they just beat the Celtics. Like, that makes, that alone <laughs> makes up for it. Like, in my preseason schedule predictions, I had them winning two of that stretch from Chicago to the Boston game they just played, and they won all but one of those games. So, it, I mean, obviously they could easily just say, well, if we just won, you know, if we just beat Portland and Charlotte, we were 23-13, and 13, right? We're 10 games over 500. But I think they've done – enough to make up for that and kind of show that they're better than those losses, even though they certainly, you know, six of their 21 wins are against Boston and Milwaukee have had some high level play against the top of the East right now. Tony East with the latest on the final two minute report. And once again, what's interesting (laughs) is that the review, the call was made accurate. The, uh, call that was wrong evidently in the final two minute report is that Porzingis foul that created three shot attempts and the winning margin for the Pacers last night in the final seconds of that game amazing finally a two minute report that I'm ready to read and happy about incredible it, it's crazy to see it's very rarely the case SI Pacers, Forbes Sports, WTHR.com, Locked On Pacers, Tony East on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Stay in touch, man. I appreciate you. Of course. Thanks for having me. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. On the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline, our friend Greg Rakestraw, he does join us. Um, yesterday, uh, a lot of confusion on on how I feel. And, and you know this, the, the end of cult seasons, especially when it doesn't go well, and, and oftentimes, unless you win the Super Bowl, it doesn't. But certainly there have been you know better moments that we have witnessed prior to than what we have seen, let's just say, for example, in the last nine seasons or so. But... What did you feel? You had the immediacy of the post-game show, you and Bill Brooks, on Saturday night after that home loss out of the postseason, Houston is in. You know, what was the feel from those that were calling in? And, and how do you feel about this team right now moving forward compared to how they failed in that capacity in winning that game Saturday night? Sure. Uh, in, in terms of how I would describe it, I think it is the difference between good and great. This would have been a great season – if the Colts had made the playoffs, if you go from four wins and the mess that was the end of last year to being a playoff team without your starting quarterback, having him not played really from, say, October the 8th on, that's a heck of a story. Um, that was, you know, part of the season this so much reminded me of was 2012 and 2018, where those teams overcame adversity and found a way to be playoff teams. Uh, so obviously that didn't happen. It is still a very good season for the Indianapolis Colts. Anytime that you can, uh, you know, increase your win total by five, you did something right. Uh, it kind of tells you again how poorly things went the year before. Also, the big picture way that I looked at it is this. There are so many more questions that are now answered compared to at this time last year. And so many of the needs last year were of the macro level. Now you're very much fine-tuning things. Now you know, hey, you, st- you still always want more pass rush. Clearly you need more help in the secondary or those guys simply have to age. Um, there needs to be more help at wide receiver. Probably needs to be a little more help at the tight end position as well. That may sound like a lot. That's a whole lot less than it was at this time a year ago. So from the caller's perspective, I was pleasantly surprised um, that it wasn't as much the woe is me or, hey, that stunk. It was, hey, that wasn't good, but you know what? 2023 went a whole lot better than I thought it was going to go for this football team. So I was pleasantly surprised by the perspective that fans had on Saturday night. So to me, it was a good season. It could have been a great season if Saturday night had turned out differently. So what you're saying is it was a 180 compared to what I talked about here yesterday, right? 
It was. I, I, I did not have a chance to what? tune in, uh, but uh, but but I, I got the gist of it on Twitter. The, the forty eight hours <laughs> leading up to the show, let's put it that way. It was. It was, uh, it was something. It, it really was. You mentioned wide receiver, and normally we'll end up finding out that one of these elite level wide receivers will grow tired with their present situation and we'll try to find an exit strategy and you know whether that's you know a guy like Devontae Adams or you know Justin Jefferson in, in Minnesota has been mentioned is that the level of wide receiver that is necessary here I'm assuming and I, I like him and I want him to be able to stay and that's Michael Pittman Jr but clearly they don't have nearly enough threats out there and wide receiving consistent threats something that you know scares for example puts a little fear into the defense is necessary is it one of those names or like names that I just mentioned is that's what's needed here or can it be something lower level that you can go to complement what they presently have and hopefully with Michael Pittman Jr what they continue to have it would be great if it was but when was the last time the Colts made a major free agent mm. splash at wide receiver well yeah you know what though greg it's been 7 years can can I'm my not, man, can I'm, my man over there maybe rethink his strategy with this a little bit john i'm 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 not saying he shouldn't yeah i'm saying will he uh, I, I, is more of my question you get where i'm going with yeah, that yeah i got it um so let's let's talk about first things first i want michael pittman junior back um are, are there other receivers better than him? Yeah, probably. But did he do everything you asked of him to do the last four years, especially this year? Yes. And what has been the M.O.? Again, let's talk about the behavioral habits of Chris Ballard. It has not been a problem to pay your own when they have played like it. And so first things first, let's make sure Michael Pittman Jr. is taken care of and bring him back. And you can argue he's a one, he's a two. He, he can be a one in this offense, and I am perfectly fine with it. I would still like to see the Indianapolis Colts go out and get another veteran wide receiver. Um, I think Josh Downs is a really good slot receiver, a really good third receiver. And he finished with, what, 66, 67 catches this past year, made a lot of big plays. Clearly you hit on that draft pick being in the third round. Um, I'm not sure Alec Pierce is a bust yet because you can question who's been throwing him the ball the last couple of years. Maybe he is more of a depth piece here than number four. You know, Ashton Doolin didn't play a snap this year. Maybe he's your five. Think about the number of wide receivers that were brought up off the practice squad at different times this year just to kind of fill things out and be thankful that Michael Pittman Jr.'s injury was one game, that Pierce was available every game that Downs was available most every game because you were ridiculously thin at wide receiver this year, and thankfully those guys were durable and were able to play nearly every snap. Uh, And so I would hope that wide receiver is something that is addressed in free agency. But if you ask me, hey, you're going to go out and get, you know, big star or bring back Michael Pittman Jr., I'd rather stick with the guy that proved how tough he was numerous times for you this year bring back Pittman, and then bring in somebody else to play off of Pittman. I'm completely fine with that. Is Greg Rakestraw's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So we heard what Shane Steichen said yesterday regarding the questions peppered at him about his defensive coordinator, Gus Bradley. Now, you can take this two different ways. One is, what would you expect him to say uh, at that moment? Right. Um, he's not going to throw him under the bus. Or you could take it as this is what he truly believes and Gus Bradley will maintain as the defensive coordinator. I guess I'll ask you this. Um, there's no doubt they need an upgrade in, in personnel, and that plays a significant right. role. But do they need a different thought process, whether it's the extreme of somebody like Wink Martindale or somebody in between these two areas with that of Gus Bradley and what is necessary moving forward as the coordinator of defense for this Colts team? Gus Bradley was a heck of a defensive mind when he had the Legion of Boom. I'm far from saying he's a bum now. I think he did a really solid job, and I think, I think their philosophy reflected the talent in which they had. Um, again, this is a group that from an overall sacks number, uh, it was one of the best, if not the best, they have ever put together. Um, again, I think they're set up front. I do think they'll bring Grover Stewart back would be my best guess. You've got one more year to Forrest Buckner. Obviously, you've got 
like Abercom, you've already brought in. You've got you know both Dangbo and Pay uh, still on their rookie deals. You know you're set up the linebacker position. In other words, you've got many pieces that are currently in place. I am of the opinion: stay with what you have, just go out and get better. And whether that is a healthy Dallas Flowers, whether that is adding another veteran in terms of the cornerback position, um, I'm not sure exactly what it's going to look like for Julian Blackman. Uh, because, again, he, he played well, but injuries have obviously been a factor all four years that he has been here. Do you bring in a veteran safety? Do you draft a safety? I would tend to believe that Gus Bradley is the defensive coordinator here next year and that, again, if you add extra talent or you simply feel more confident about a young secondary, then maybe your defensive philosophy can change I do think there was a lot of times that they were protecting a very young back four this year. Greg, who has the tougher road test tonight? Are you at Rutgers or Purdue at Nebraska? Nebraska's a better team. Rutgers is a tougher environment. Now, forgive me, John, I'm not sure if the kids from Rutgers are back in class yet. So I don't know if that uh, you know, oh, changes. I don't know. Um, changes the intensity at the rack because I'm a big fan of Big Ten games that are played at old high school gyms. Because that's, you know, what the rack really is. And rack that is the Jer- like that Jersey Craig. Mike's Arena, Greg right. Rickstra, uh, yeah. no, no, no offense to the Danny DeVito sub-commercials. <laughs> it's always going to be the rack to me, the Rutgers Athletic right. Center. Um, and I think those smallish, weird, old, quirky buildings are tougher to win at than these pristine new palaces, which is exactly what Nebraska has. I think Nebraska is the better team this year. I think this is the best team that Fred has had uh, out in Lincoln. Um, so it's it's all about atmosphere. Better team, Nebraska. Tougher building to win at, the rack. All right, Butler the other night, close, halftime lead, number four, UConn, the defending champion, got him in the second half at Hinkle. How do you, how do you view that moving forward uh, from the outside looking in for Thad Mata's crew? Disappointment. Uh, they are clearly better. Uh, you feel bad that they lost that one. But as I told you the last week or the week before, I really think it's just about, you know, you've got so many opportunities to pick up quality wins um, if you're Butler, if you're Indiana, because you get those most every night in the Big East and the Big Ten, respectively. So a missed opportunity at home against UConn to get a quad one win. So they're, frankly, one of the top five teams in the country right now, at least by the net rankings and metrics and things like that they are. Um, so while that's a disappointment, you've got so many other chances for quality wins that big picture, the fact that you were as competitive with them kind of tells you maybe the medal of team that I think that Butler can be and, and is at that point. All right, Greg, final thing, high school-wise, to this point in the season, most impressive team, most impressive individual player that you had to call the game for, again, to this point. Sure, most impressive individual is Floyd Bedunga. Um, and just because I can see the improvement in his game from last year. He still, to his credit, doesn't just force or take bad shots, um, but I've seen him make jump shots. And his game last year at a defensive, rebounding, passing level um, was a major college level. He's still not a major college offensive player, but you can see the growth in his game. And the kid is just such a good kid and great teammate he'll be an impact player at kansas the moment he sets foot on campus in lawrence so he's the most impressive player maybe the best individual performance i have seen so far is braylon mullins from greenfield central he had 31 and hit nearly a three-quarter court shot in the game inning at southport back on december the 9th and obviously he is part of a ridiculously talented junior class the most impressive team is one that I haven't seen yet, but that would be the Fishers-Tigers. Again, I'm trying to figure out how you lose your best players, and one of the best players, not just in the state, but as in the entire, entire recruiting class in Jalen Harrelson, who is now at Laporte La Lumiere, and Fishers is unbeaten. Um, and they smoked Kokomo, and Kokomo's pretty good. Uh, Fishers beat Noblesville. I saw Noblesville. They're really good. Uh, Fishers found a way to win in overtime on the road at Center Grove, and Center Grove is a pretty good team too. Yeah, even if they don't have as many wins, they're they're really a senior dominated bunch. And Fishers found a way to tough it out. So, uh, very impressed by Fishers. I feel bad I haven't seen him play my own eyes yet, and hopefully I'll rectify that very soon. That uh, Joey Schmidt's kid, I think, hit about twenty five threes in a game last week. Did he not? <laughs> Something like that. 
So. He's had some good games. We had him twice, and, and he didn't have great games the two games I saw him. He's a, he's a heck of a player down there. Yeah, got a big kid on that team, too, I believe. That, uh, you got Spell, some... Will Spellman, very solid kid at 6'6". Six, six. Yeah. Maybe talking about uh, Mike, the young man that's that's a movement. about 6'9", six, 6'10", six, yeah, right. that is very raw, that, that they'll work on him going forward. All right, so um, one, one Laney has a game with her eighth-grade team tonight, Center Grove and Franklin. Are you going to call that game? I will not call that game, but John, just so you know, I literally just emailed a particular school about adding a game to their schedule with Eastern Green as the opponent. No, you didn't. So if that comes down, I may be asking you for sponsorship dollars as well as a color yes. commentary opportunity. Is it, is it Greenwood? No, um, I, I, it is potentially a game at Owen Valley. On oh, February. man. You're going down to... Going down to call the River Rats in their game. Wow. I I, I have called games for Spencer before, John. It's not that far. <laughs> I drive. had no idea you have. That is, I mean, they uh, got an IGA there and everything. It's got to be a cool place, right? They have a Bab Super Value, which is one of my in – in a world now where we're losing all of our IGAs and our independent grocery stores, it still remains one of the best in Indiana. That's Bab Super Value in Spencer, Indiana. You are nothing, John, if you are not hometown proud. America's <laughs> I idea. Am, yes, I, I am. Well, I was going to say because I, I can't watch. I think they start at five thirty. I'm not going to be off the air yet. So we got uh, we got well, Lenny Lou happen. starting in La Hoop tonight. I'll, I'll give you the going rate for ISC to produce eighth grade basketball. We'll figure something out. Give me, <laughs> give me a heads up next time. Hey, by the way, Jim McCann says Rutgers classes begin January the sixteenth. So, um, Jackie April will not be. That's a Sopranos reference. He once upon a time attended Rutgers before his unfortunate demise on the Sopranos will not be in attendance this evening. So no, then no Jersey students. Mike's is going to be a pushover. If that's the case. That should be no problem for the Hoosiers. Just a shame it's on Peacock. So I cannot watch and enjoy. With relative ease, Greg Rakestraw says. And yeah, I'm with you on Peacock. That's a double dip of Peacock. Indiana's going to be freaking out over that tonight. This is the night when everybody really does get pissed, Greg, you know? Well, it is, unless you're a radio program director. So my first year that I was the PD at the fan, I think at that point in time, that was the year that Butler was in the A-10. I think they had a whopping two games that were not televised that year. One of those was Butler at LaSalle, and the ratings for that game were off the chart. So it's going to be a big night for 93 WIBC coming up later today. My man, I appreciate you. Keep in touch. See you, buddy. It's Greg Rakestraw on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline.